And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave, also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me a fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Uh, We're in the middle of a series here at St. Helens looking at Genesis 1-4. to Chapters which lay out God's foundational teaching about the world and our place within it. And this evening, we're thinking about the question, where did it all go wrong? You might find it helpful to turn to the back of the handout, past the testimonies, and there is a handout which we'll be following through the course of this evening. But the question to start with is, where did it all go wrong? Because it clearly has gone wrong, hasn't it? Wherever you stand in relation to Jesus, whether you're a Christian or not, you have to concede that there is something fundamentally wrong with this world. Some of us are in the thick of it at the moment, and even those of us with relatively steady lives only need to turn on the news to see the aching devastation suffered by so many in the world at the moment. And yet we have spent the last five weeks looking at God's perfect design for the world, his good, ordered world, and his lavish generosity towards humanity, the abundant goodness of the Garden of Eden, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the privilege that he's given us, humans, his image bearers, to spread a knowledge of that goodness across the globe. The way that God set up the world was overwhelmingly good, So where did it all go wrong? Tonight's passage is at the center point of Genesis 2 and 3. You can see a box on the handout as an illustration of where we've been and where we're going. Before tonight's passage, God put humanity in the garden. He gave him perfect work and a perfect marriage, and they felt no shame. But after tonight's passage, we see them ashamed with a broken marriage and broken work, and they're cast out of the garden. Tonight's passage is the hinge between God's perfect world and the broken world we see around us. The place that it all goes wrong is tonight. And it happens in the shadow of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me read chapter 2, verse 16, just above the reading we had read earlier. 
chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And you see God's lavish generosity in that command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, every one of those pleasant, good trees standing around them, except for one, just one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. It's not that God wants to deprive them of knowledge of good and evil. He's already been giving them that knowledge himself showering them with an intimate knowledge of, God, uh, of good and telling them what is right and what is wrong. What he's trying to stop them from doing in verse 17 is seeking after that knowledge apart from him. He's trying to stop them from reaching out to grasp knowledge their own way, walking by the light of their own eyes, deciding what is good and evil apart from him rather than accepting what he says his good, trustworthy word. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is essentially about a choice. Are you going to trust God's word or are you going to go your own way? Try and get it for yourself. It should have been a wonderful opportunity for humanity to declare the trustworthiness of God. It should have been a chance for them to show how ready they were to trust him rather than to trust themselves. But at this center point of Genesis 2 and 3, at this hinge, we discover that a failure to trust the word of the Lord is the reason that it all went wrong. A failure to trust the word of the Lord is the reason that the world is the way that it is. It unfolds like one of those scenes from a horror film. You know the films where the disaster is coming and you know that it's coming and you're watching it unfold in painful slow motion. Just a week ago, I finally caught up with the 2018 thriller, A Quiet Place. I imagine that most of us have seen it ages ago. I finally got there last week. Some of us won't have seen it. You don't need to, don't worry. I'm going to ruin the first five minutes of it, but not the whole film. The only thing you need to know is that for the sake of everybody's safety, they have to be perfectly quiet. That becomes clear in the opening minutes of the film as it begins with a scene of unsettling silence. It's obvious they need to be quiet, but it's not obvious why. And so we've got some sympathy when a child gets told off for picking up a noisy toy in a shop. It's not safe, he's told. Too loud. And the toy is taken off him and put to one side. And we feel sorry for that kid in the film. Indeed, because we don't really see why it was such a problem, we think that his sister is doing him a favour when she discreetly returns the toy to him and gives him a wink. Fair enough, we're thinking, if we're watching the film for the first time. But whether we knew why it mattered or not, there's no question that the instruction was given to that child out of love. It's not safe. Too loud. And in the minutes that follow, we discover why it mattered, why a noisy toy might prove to be so dangerous, as this noisy toy acts like a beacon to some horrific monster who grabs the child and kills him. It is a shocking start to the film. But here in Genesis 3, it is a far more shocking start to the Bible as we see a much worse disaster dawning in painful slow motion. Slowly, frame by frame, we're shown the failure of Adam and Eve to trust the word of the Lord. 
And again, I think we might think, why is it so bad? But we've been given this passage to show us why their failure matters so much. That the failure stands behind everything that's wrong with the world. And I think we need that. Because so often we're tempted to blame God for the state of the world, aren't we? Why, God? Why is it like this? Why did you make such a broken world? Even if you're not a Christian, you might be inclined to rail against God for the state of the world. But God is not to blame for the brokenness of the world we live in. As we've seen over the past few weeks, God created an abundantly good world. The reason the world is the way that it is, the reason for the brokenness of the world, is because we have defied the word of the Lord. And that's the first point on the handout, if you're still following there. Defying the word of the Lord God. Let me read verse 1 of our passage again. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Before we get upset about the idea of talking snakes, it's clear from the rest of the Bible that we're to understand this serpent as the great enemy of God, the devil, Satan. We live in a world that likes to deny the existence of Satan at all. You might think that a real personal devil is about as unlikely as a talking snake. But Jesus was clear in his teaching, uh, even later, that there is a real personal opponent of God, the devil. He is at work still in the world today. And frankly, his greatest success is perhaps convincing so many in the West that he doesn't exist. The devil is a real person who has set himself in opposition to God. But crucially, as we start, we see that he is just a beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Uh, Not a rival God, as though God has got an enemy and we're not sure who will win. Uh, Just a creature. And yet he has set himself up in opposition to God and tries to tempt the woman to oppose him as well with three particular lies. And they are striking lies for us this evening. Uh, Firstly, the end of verse one. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see the idea? Is God so cruel that he won't let you eat from any of the trees? What a spoil sport. Of course, it's a blatant lie. God's lavish generosity opened up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for foods. But see how the woman is drawn in by it. Verse Did you spot what she missed out in verse two? Verse two, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. See the word that she's missing there? God said, you may eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden. But take out the word every and it already sounds a bit more stingy. But it gets worse, verse three. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And neither shall you touch it. Really? The way that Eve talks about it. God really does sound a bit like a sport, doesn't he? And before we criticise her, it's striking, isn't it, how quickly we believe the same lie today. How quickly we believe that God is depriving us of happiness and joy. That things that God forbids us are actually good for us, we think. What a spoil sport, we think. And if we had longer, we could spend more time exploring 
how widespread that lie is. Please do spend some time chatting about that later. But the lies continue. We've got more to explore. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You're not going to get judged, he says. There's no consequences. God's just going to ignore it, brush it under the carpet, pretend it didn't happen. After all, that's God's job, isn't it? Do you hear what he's saying this time? And again, it's not hard to hear the devil's voice still ringing out today. It doesn't matter where you study or work, you'll hear a denial that God is ever going to come and judge. We don't like the idea that God's going to judge, and so we deny that judgment is a real thing. Like the toddler who sticks his fingers in his ears going, no, 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 I'm sure that's not right, no, 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 no. They probably don't say it quite like that, they just go, no. And then there's the third lie, perhaps the most powerful. Look at verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Can you see why it's so tempting? Eat this, he says, and you can be like God, knowing good and evil. Independent of his giving knowledge of good and evil, your own way. You can be in charge. You don't have to rely on God's wisdom. You can get it for yourself. You can be independent, free of that spoiled sport, miserable restrictions. And again, it's so contemporary, isn't it? Don't we constantly want to be in charge? Whenever the Bible says anything that we disagree with, don't we instantly jump on the assumption that it would be better if it said something else? I wish I was in charge. We assume God must be wrong rather than entertaining the possibility that perhaps we're the wrong ones, that we're the ones with corrupted judgments, that perhaps it's good that God's in charge, that perhaps the good God who made a good world might know better than us what is good for his creatures. Three blatant lies. And yet, tragically, she believes the lies instead of God. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Some of you will know Nick, who's on the staff team here, working with guys at the 6pm. And I was talking to him about this a few weeks ago, and he made a really helpful observation. He pointed out that we look at the behaviour of verse 6, and we think, well, we think it's pretty harmless, don't we? It's just eating a bit of fruit, it's just breaking a little rule, it's not that bad. We're like the children at the beginning of that film, A Quiet Place. What's so wrong with a noisy toy? Why is it such a problem? Uh, Don Carson, the scholar, in his book, The God Who Is There, has a really helpful chapter on Genesis 3. And he says this, we should not think that the serpent's temptation is nothing more than an invitation to break a rule, arbitrary or otherwise. That is what a lot of people think that sin is, just breaking a rule. What is at stake here is something deeper, bigger, sadder, uglier, more heinous. Firstly, this is a flagrant denial of God's goodness, isn't it? They're effectively saying, God has not been good enough to me, and so I'm going to do things my own way. 
She eats of the fruit because it's pleasant to the sight and good for food. How dare God deprive me of such things? All the while surrounded by trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food, as we learned back in chapter 2. But it's more than that. It's not just a flagrant denial of God's goodness. It's a failure to fulfill the roles that God had given them. They were supposed to work and keep the garden, to guard it. They should have thrown out this God-defying snake, but instead they listened to him. Adam was supposed to provide a lead in his family, but he's so passive, you don't even know he's there until verse 6. And when he finally did do something, it was to follow her into sin. They were supposed to be a couple who declared the goodness of God around the world. But instead, they announced by their behavior that he was untrustworthy. They denied his goodness. And yet most serious of all, it is a fundamental reversal of the creation order. God made humanity to rule under him over all the earth. God Humanity over all the earth. But here it's reversed. The man and the woman submit to a creature, the serpents. And worst of all, they set themselves in opposition to God, over God, in defiance of the God who made them as image bearers. It was, in essence, to declare war on God. The small group leaders of St. Helens had a weekend away this weekend. And as part of the proceedings, I asked a couple of the members of the staff team here to come up with a plan for the evening entertainment. I had no idea what they planned, uh, but wasn't too surprised when they came up with a game that involved decorating an egg uh, in a way that made it look pretty, but which also uh, protected it from being hit with a golf club, which is pretty standard organized fun. And the thing that was a little bit unusual about it was that they said that in order to make it um, look a bit different, they, people had to try and make it look as much as possible like me. <laughs> Which isn't actually that difficult because I have a certain natural resemblance. <laughs> but what was disconcerting was the realisation that what these staff had essentially invented was a game that involved producing lots of little models of me and beating them with a golf club. <laughs> it's quite a disturbing gesture. And if it had been done because they wanted to reject me as their boss, well, that would have been horrific, wouldn't it? And what Adam and Eve did was infinitely worse. When Adam and Eve chose to defy the word of the Lord God, it was a denial of his goodness, a desertion of their roles, and ultimately a declaration of war on God. Their behavior might look to us harmless, We think that whenever we defy God's word, don't we? But to seek to be like God is to claim divine authority over his earth. It is to move into his land and seize control. And we can deny we're declaring war as enthusiastically as Putin. But it doesn't make it any less true of our response to God. Carson again says, what is at stake here is something deeper Bigger, sadder, uglier, more heinous. It is, he goes on, a revolution. It makes me God, and thus de-gods or dethrones God. And the same deeper, bigger, sadder, uglier, more heinous revolution is at stake every time someone trusts the same lies and defies God's word 
when the world decries God as a spoil sport and calls out Bible-believing Christians as bigoted and backwards, when the world denies his judgment, who really believes in hell anyway, when we think that our way is better, when we make ourselves God and try to dethrone the true God from his rightful place over this world, it is not the breaking of an arbitrary rule, but defying the creator who made us to rule under him. And it is there that everything went horribly wrong. Uh, More briefly, point two on the handout. Defying the word of the Lord God is where everything went wrong. We're going to see more of the consequences next week. But even in those few verses we had read, we start to see it falling apart. Uh, Adam and Eve were hoping for the better life that the devil promised. For the greater knowledge that they thought they'd get. And they certainly did gain some knowledge. The devil's most powerful lies are always varnished with a hint of truth. But it was not a more intimate knowledge of good. And most obviously, they gain an intimate knowledge of shame and fear. I just look at the bookends of 2.25 and 3.7. 2 verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Imagine feeling no shame, having nothing to hide. But by 3 verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Indeed, when God comes walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, they both hide. Verse 10, the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What a devastating turnaround in their relationship. And as so often happens when we're ashamed, we start to play the blame game. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The uh, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see, even in Adam's comment there, he's not merely content to blame the woman. He even implies that God did something wrong in bringing her to him. The woman whom you gave me. The relationship between God and humanity was perfect back in chapter 2. But now they're hiding and they're blaming. It's in tatters. Even before they died physically, and we'll see next week that's coming, even before that, they died spiritually. Their relationship with God was broken. They haven't become better acquainted with good, they've become better acquainted with evil. They haven't become like God, they've become estranged from him. And as we'll see next week, there's even more that's ruined. God's perfect world is transformed because we defied God's world, God's word. It's not looking so harmless now, is it? At the beginning of a quiet place, you look at the children's behaviour and you think, fair enough, how, could a no- how bad could a noisy toy be, really? But as the tragic consequences of their defiance unfolds on screen in front of you, you realise why it was such a tragic mistake. Genesis 3 is a much worse disaster, dawning in painful slow motion, and by the end of it, it's clear why it was such an error. The whole world is broken. So how tragic is it that the world continues to think that defiance of the word of the Lord is the way forward? We think our rebellion is so clever, so modern, so enlightened, but really it's falling for the same three oldest lies in the book, that God is a spoil sport, that he won't judge, that we can be in charge. 
the last 60 years of cultural progress in this country continue to get hailed as years of advance. And maybe that's how you would characterize the transformation in cultural norms over the past few decades. But have you ever stopped to consider the consequences of abandoning God's good design? We thought last week about how our world has abandoned God's design for sex and relationships. But is our increasing sexual freedom really good news for us? The increasing sexualization of children. News reports this week of sexual harassment being experienced by even a majority of teenagers. The pervasive objectification of women and men. The breakdown of families. And where some actually want to undermine the tyranny of the biological family and where they're seeing some success, we see the true cost of that breakdown. The loss of all the natural stability and support that family brings. The slow unravelling of society as we set fire to God's design. Enlightened? Far from it. Gullible and reaping the tragic consequences. Not that this is a one-for-one translation, that my personal suffering is necessarily a result of my personal rebellion against God, but that in a more general sense, the brokenness of this world is a consequence of humanity's defiance of God's good words, that a failure to trust the word of the Lord is the reason that the world is the way that it is. So what are we to do? What is the solution? Of course, you might be expecting me to say, we've got to do better. We've got to trust the word of the Lord God, unlike Adam and Eve. Indeed, the first hearers of this, I imagine, needed to hear that God's word can be trusted. As we've been thinking about all evening, it is a good word. It's when we stop trusting God's word that everything falls apart. But that can't be the solution because, well, because we can't do better. Adam and Eve didn't just fool themselves. They introduced into the world a consistent practice of defying God. They brought sin and death into the world. It's what Christians call original sin. The tendency now built into us from the very beginning of our lives to defy God and to set ourselves up in opposition to him. Ever since Adam and Eve, this defiance of God's word has been universal That's why we continue to see so much human evil in the rest of Genesis, in the rest of the Bible, and of course in the world around us. As so many have said, we are the problem in the world today. Not because of overpopulation, not because of just a few bad apples, but because we all defy the word of the Lord God. And so what are we to do? What is the solution? I don't think we were given Genesis 3 to tell us to do better Uh, The author of this material, God, he knows that we are incapable. He knows that we have this tendency to defy his word. But he's given us this passage to show us the horror of failing to trust the word of the Lord God and to make it really clear what we need. What we need is someone who does trust the word of the Lord God. What we really need is Jesus. Uh, Much later in the Bible, Luke chapter 4, you can turn it up later, we get an account of Jesus himself being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And it's striking the way that Luke records it. It comes just after a family tree that ties Jesus, traces Jesus' family all the way back to Adam, as if to remind us of this Genesis account. 
And as the devil tempts Jesus to defy the word of the Lord, again it comes in the form of three comments, three lies varnished with a hint of truth. It's as though Luke wants us to think of the episode as a rerun of Genesis 3, but this time with a new Adam. And where the old Adam fell into temptation, the new Adam resisted. Where the old one gave in, the new one triumphed. Where the old one defied God's word, this new Adam trusted. The solution could never be our resolve to do better, Those who got baptised this evening, they weren't committing to living better and hoping that turning over a new leaf will fix all the problems. Our only hope is that Jesus has done better and that he has done so for us. The Christian hope is that we have a new Adam, one who did what we should have done and did so on our behalf. As Christians, we're not those who think we've got it all, done it all right. We're those who recognize our failure is why the world is the way it is, but that because of Jesus' success, we can be restored into a right relationship with God. As we close, I was struck even this week how, even as I was writing this talk, how quickly I drift into believing those same three lies of the devil that God is a spoil sport, that my actions don't matter, that we can be in charge. They are wicked lies, varnished with this faint hint of truth. And so we still believe them. And so we reap the same consequences of guilt and shame as Adam and Eve. Which is why in just a moment we're going to say words of confession together. It's right to acknowledge our failure to trust the word of the Lord, to repent, to turn around But we do so not trusting our own efforts now to fix everything, our resolve to do better, but trusting this new Adam, the Lord Jesus, who has rerun the scene and done what none of us could do, whose perfect and whose perfect trust is credited to anyone who puts their trust in him. Our failure to trust the word of the Lord is why the world is the way it is. But Jesus' success in trusting the word of the Lord is why Christians can have hope. As our final song is going to put it, in my place you suffered, bled and died. You rose, the grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. And if you don't know anything of that for yourself, please find out about that Christianity Explored course that William mentioned earlier. This passage is here to show us that our failure to trust the word of the Lord is why the world is the way that it is. And if the story stopped there in verse 13, it would be hopeless. But it doesn't stop there. And that is very good news for us indeed. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that you have created a good world and that you have given us a good word. How we praise you that your word is trustworthy and true. How it is good for us. And we acknowledge that we have joined the whole of humanity in defying your word. So we praise you that in your extraordinary kindness and grace you have offered to us in the Lord Jesus hope even as those who have defied you. And we pray that you'd cause each and every one of us to cling all the more to our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.